we usually get started. No, it's not. Well, yeah, no, you're right. Usually. Yeah. yeah. Well, I usually don't even make it on until like <laughs> now. <laughs> like this is when I'm joining the call usually. <laughs> like, oh, Basil, thanks for joining us. I'm like, ah, oh, yeah. Antichrist line, you're on the air. Hello. Art. Yes. You called. You asked me to call. What do you need? Do you claim to be the Antichrist? Yeah. Oh, then there's many questions that I have for you. All right. Everybody ready? Yep. Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name's Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number... 79. Today's guest is Daniel Duvall. He's an author, speaker. He's a licensed minister and radio host. He is the founder and president of Bride Ministries. He's published two full-length books, Noah's Ark and the End Days and Wounded by Leadership. And we'll talk about some of that. And uh, he was also the host of the Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall podcast and the host of Revelation Ready radio broadcast. He's also written for Promoting Purpose magazine and his vision is to promote unity in the body of Christ worldwide and assist in the creation and development of sheep nations. And I know Basil's got a question about that. How you doing, Daniel? I'm doing wonderful today. It's a pleasure to be on a program with you guys. This is really exciting for me. It's been a couple months since I've actually been on the air, so I feel like I'm getting my feet wet all over again. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, everybody will notice how clean and crisp you sound because you've got your own uh, sort of setup over there, and we appreciate that. I do have a question. Right off the That's bat. That's why what I'm is, here. What is, what are you doing assisting in the creation and development of sheep nations? What is that like a, like a, a nation of sheeple or are the people like herding sheep or is it a nation principally dominated by walking, talking sheep? Like, what is that? The walking, talking sheep. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Welcome to Bath. <laughs> they take you in and treat you as their king. Oh, gosh. <laughs> okay. All right. Please explain. Starting with that question is huge. And oh. you're really touching on something that could take me the entire program to explain. Oh, but yeah. yeah, this makes your job easy, right? <laughs> sit back and then fire all your... Uh, you know, contradictions at me at end, but you know, that, that's why we're here. Uh, first of all, I just want to say this. Uh, I don't want people to think as I'm going through this and all that, that I am one of those guys that believe I know everything there is to know about eschatology and my eschatology is superior to yours, et cetera, et cetera. Um, my deal is that I'm very much wanting to have a dialogue about the end times. Uh, that's been the focus of my radio program. I always talk with people that have different views than I myself hold. And so I don't want anyone to feel like threatened as I begin to <laughs> explain some of these things um, or think that you know I would be not open to dialoguing and answering questions, going back and forth, being challenged and so forth. Um, right. But with that said... Well, you know, Gans and I were incredibly close-minded and pedantic. <laughs> So, watch out, mister. Hey, 
There it is. Um, the idea of sheep nations comes from Matthew chapter 25. And what we find in Matthew chapter 25, as you get to the last section of the passage, is this really interesting scenario. So, Jesus essentially begins in Matthew chapter 24, and he's talking about what is going to be the sign of his coming, the sign of the end of the age. All of his disciples ask him these questions. He begins to answer them after leaving the temple. And so, we end up with this Matthew 24 dialogue, which is hugely important when it comes to the study of eschatology. But in um, the Synoptic Gospels, what we find is that Matthew 24 is largely overlapping with Mark 13 and Luke 21. They, they're basically saying a lot of the same things. You see there's a lot of overlap and so forth. But the unique thing about Matthew is that after Jesus gets done explaining what he talks about in Matthew 24, this famous passage, answering all these questions about the end of the age, what's going to happen, and so forth, he keeps talking. And the other synoptic gospels don't actually record this information, only Matthew. But he keeps talking. It's all part of the same dialogue, which is really interesting because what we have is we have this explanation of all these end times events. You know, there's going to be famine, there's going to be pestilence, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Then you're going to be persecuted. And when they set up this abomination of desolation, let him who readeth understand. Then there shall be, um, you know, great tribulation such as never been. Mm-hmm. And on and on. Okay, then we get to Matthew 25, and he begins to tell all these parables and stories. We have the parable of the virgins, the ten virgins, and then we have the parable of the talents. And when we begin to understand that Matthew 24 and 25 are really one dialogue, what begins to come clear is that the parables and stories and things that Jesus says in Matthew 25 are intended to be understood along with or alongside of everything that he's explaining in Matthew 24. In other words, there are parallels that go between those two chapters. And the climax, the end of the conversation, is this straightforward explanation where Jesus is telling them about the separation of nations. And in Matthew 25, 31, it says, when the Son of Man shall come. Now, before that, you have these two parables, the parable of the virgins, And then the parable of the talents. Both of those begin with, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to. So, they're parables. But when we get to Matthew 25, 31, there's no parable. It says, when the Son of Man comes. That's a fact of what's being communicated. It's just, that is the time when he comes. Then we read and it says, um, he's coming in his glory. What is that second coming? And all the holy angels with him. Then he shall sit upon the throne of his glory. Now, the Bible talks a lot about the end times and what's going to happen leading up to Jesus' return. And by the way, for those of you that are listening, I I am not a pre-trib person. And I don't apologize for that. And we can talk about that. I'm not focused on that explaining this right now. But that is the perspective I do hold. And in, in, in like-mindedness with your friend Doug Krieger and um, <laughs> Rob Skiba. And now Doug Hamp, believe it or not, we're all high-fiving now because we're all like on the same side. It's so cool. Like, yes, I have friends now. But, um, you know, and we all have different, different approaches to explaining why we believe this way. But basically, we're, we're beginning to come in, well, and I started here, uh, this idea that Jesus is not doing this 
come in the clouds seven years later, he comes again, but more of a, just a one-time day of the Lord coming all in one event type view. But anyway, what I'm saying is whether you're pre-trib or like me, I'm post-trib, pre-wrath kind of combination there, uh, we're talking about that coming of Jesus Christ in glory. In other words, at the end. Right. It says, when he's going to sit on the throne of his glory, all of these nations shall be gathered before him. And you have to ask yourself, okay, am I reading the Bible or am I reading interpretation into the Bible? The Bible says when Jesus comes in his glory, nations will be gathered before him. That's just what it says. Nations being ethnos or ethnic groups, which can be in the Greek in reference to geographic territories that are under jurisdictions of governments and obviously the people groups contained therein, and also wider ethnic groups. In other words, you can be an American living in Australia, you're still, you know, consider yourself, America is my ethnic group, or, you know, I'm Puerto Rican, but I'm living in America, and I, you know, I still hail that I'm part Puerto Rican. So, you have these ethnic groups. The Bible doesn't really infer uh, certain stiff requirements on how we interpret this word, ethnos, so I don't either. It just says nations. Right. And it says, and he shall divide them as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Now, the question is why? Why, when Jesus comes back, will there be nations, ethnos, being divided? And that answer mm. is where we begin to understand what I'm talking about. Because most people, they read right over this, they say, well, Jesus comes back, everything's burned up, everything's destroyed, it's all over, and, you know, this is Christians in all eternity, and that's it. Well, question, when you get to Revelation chapter 20, and you find that the nations from the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, are deceived by Satan, and they all come against the holy city to fight with God, where do those people come from? Are, are they Christians? Right. This is a good question. Yeah. It's like, the nations where did they gather. Come from? Yeah, right. nations gather. Right. What nations? Didn't they all burn up? Aren't they all dead? Well, here's my answer. I believe that when Jesus comes back, according to Matthew 25, there will be nations that aren't burned up and completely destroyed and uh, dead at, as a result of his coming. I, I think that Matthew 25 means that some people do survive. And I think, you know, like in Isaiah, we find that man shall be as rare as gold of Ophir, things like Comments like that means there's probably not going to be that many people, but I think that some do actually survive because we have to remember things like Armageddon. That's a local battle. That actually has a geographic territory right. in the Middle East where it occurs that the blood is up to the, you know, horses' bridles that, you know, it's not this bloodbath all over the earth. That's a battlefield. And so when we begin to look at some of these things and take it at face value and just say, well, let me not put my interpretation on the text. Just let the text speak for itself. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be nations. They're going to be divided. Some are going on the right hand. Some are going on the left. Here's the kicker. When we read why the nations are divided that way, something very, very interesting crops up. Now, I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to ask you, gentlemen, tell me where you find salvation by grace through faith. It says of the sheep, then the king shall say unto them on his right hand, come, ye blessed of my father, 
Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall say the righteous, When saw we hungry, and fed you, or saw you thirsty, and gave you drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, insomuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Now, what he's saying there is he's saying you're going to inherit the kingdom. Now, when Jesus comes back, what, what does he establish on the earth in a very literal sense? He establishes his kingdom completely in totality. Um, right. That 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 is, and, and we can get into kingdom later on because there's a lot of cool things that we understand. But I'm not a dominionist, and uh, I just say that because I know that whenever the term kingdom comes up, people get very nervous. I right. find in certain yeah. circles, like, <laughs> oh no, what is he going to say? What is he going to tell us? Like, yeah. okay, no, I'm not a crook. Don't don't crucify me yet. I believe that the kingdom is coming in its fullness as manifestation on the earth when Jesus returns. He's he's bringing that with him. And he's saying, now I'm going to give these people access to that. You're actually going to enter in. And he's saying, well, and this is why. Right. Does he say, because you have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? He does not. He does not. He does not. This is so crazy. Yeah. Guys, I remember, um, and, and the truth of the matter is, I know that in prayer, God began speaking to me about sheep nations before I even knew what this passage was or that it was even in the Bible. I started getting this term in prayer, and I didn't know what the frame of reference was, but here I found it, and it took God even a couple of years to explain this to me, because there's not really teaching out there about this subject, and people just don't seem to quite get this far. So, as I began to dissect the text and just do exegesis, not eisegesis, I said, this is why they are inheriting the kingdom, because of the way they treated Jesus, by their response to his brethren. In other words, when Jesus says, as you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me, you know who the brethren of God, Jesus Christ are? It's, that's us. That's the Christians. So, you know, I, 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 I was talking with someone the other day, you know, counseling type setting, and they were having a revelation. This person has been through a lot of things. And when I say a lot of things, it's really bad stuff. They had a revelation. Jesus showed it to them. It's like, Every time this was done to you, that terrible thing was perpetrated against you. Every time someone did something so diabolical to destroy your life, they did it to me. And this touched this person on such a deep level. Because you know what? We all suffer a lot of things in life, whether it's you know, that we're being subjected to satanic rituals, or we just go through really bad backstabbings, rejection, um, disappointments, abandonment, you know, it, it stuff hurts and people go out of their way to literally do really garbage things to us. And when we realize that what is being done to us is being done to Jesus, right. that revelation alone is healing. It's huge. It sets us free. So the Bible here says, as you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done unto me. He's telling the nations, listen, guys, you cooperated with my people. You fed them. 
You clothed them. You worked with them. And for this reason, now that I've come back, you people are being given access to my kingdom. So, this point or this aspect of the return of Christ, in my opinion, based on pure exegesis of the word, tells me that there is a transition that occurs at the return of Jesus that beyond the resurrection of the dead, those dead in Christ, and beyond the changing, 1 Corinthians 15, 52 through 53, or the famous rapture of the church where we are changed into our full redemptive state, body, soul, and spirit glorified. In addition, there are nations that are judged. And depending on how they responded to the brethren of Jesus Christ will determine their eternal destiny. Now, this goes right back to my question of Revelation chapter 20. You say, well, where do all these nations come from that rebel against God? Are they Christians? Well, my answer is absolutely not. I believe that Revelation 25 is a transition point for those that did not die at the return of Jesus Christ, and that some of them, because they responded to the body of Christ in a certain way uh, that is acceptable according to the judgment and justice of God, will be granted access to the kingdom and will abide on the earth as residents of that redeemed earth. And in doing that, they won't be like the Christians, which have been glorified, but they'll be humans that have transitioned that are going to be able to have kids to repopulate the earth, to be, you know, as, as, as it says in Revelation, those that overcome will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Who are they ruling and reigning over? Right. There's a transition point, and it's right here in Matthew 25. Now, that's what I firmly believe. And because of that, I believe that, see, I think the church is going to, in the last days, have a larger degree of influence than traditional dispensationalist thought has promoted or has um, talked about. Because these nations are going to, for some reason, decide that even though we're not going to sign up with Jesus Christ and believe by grace through faith in Jesus and receive that salvation, we are not going to be against the people of God. Actually, we're going to help them. Let me dive in real quick. When you say the traditional dispensational teaching, can you, can you expound on that just so the audience who may not know what that means can uh, understand that? And then you can yes. dive into the rest of it. Okay. Now, this is an interesting right, concept. So, dispensationalism stands in contrast to another major, I guess, perspective on theology or an approach to theology called covenant theology. So, you basically have two, two major camps. You have covenant theologians and, and dispensational theologians. Now, it was explained to me like this by a really cool theologian I met. He, he said, um, basically, covenant theology says that whatever you have in the Old Testament is transferred into the New Testament unless it's changed. But dispensationalism believes that it's not transitioned into the New Covenant unless it's repeated. So, that's, that's a very simplified or simplistic point of view. Um, 
more specifically, dispensationalism is the main view taught by groups like the Dallas Theological Seminary, throughout, you know, any, like the Baptists, the Pentecostals, this, that. A lot of it goes back to notes that were organized into what we know today as the Schofield Reference Bible. And it breaks up the Bible into different types of, you know, dispensations. And what it does, essentially, is it creates this view of the end times that is based on futurism, uh, premillennialism, and also a pre-tribulation rapture, meaning that after the state of Israel was formed, basically all the, the prophecies that needed to be fulfilled before Jesus comes back are essentially fulfilled, and now we have a situation where we have an anytime second coming of Jesus Christ to catch away his church. The, the pre-trib rapture becomes what some have called the crown jewel of dispensational theology. So, I don't know if I did justice to that question, but that's um, kind of what I'm getting at. So, when I talk about dispensational theologians, there's this idea that pervades the, the approach to theology that um, really we're here to, so to speak, survive until Jesus comes back and redeems everything. That's that the Christian, you know, we, we have salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we get baptized in water, we lead a righteous and holy life, and eventually God is going to come back and then redeem everything. Until then, we just have to stand in the faith. Um, covenant theology and, and covenant theologians tend to be a, a little bit different, um, and there it, it's the dispensational approach to theology is not exclusive, and it's not as all-pervasive as some people may think. And the more I've talked to different people, different theologians in different countries, the more I've realized that there's a lot of variation into uh, basic paradigms as to what Christianity means for us and for this world right now. And so, anyway, that, that's kind of like my short answer to that question. And I'll, I'll, I'll just throw out there, I am not uh, a traditional dispensationalist either. Uh, what happens oftentimes when a person begins to move away from a pre-trib rapture position, other things begin to change. Sure. And I'll just say it like this. If the mark of the beast means you cannot buy, sell, or trade unless you take it, and one believes that they will be here during the time period that that mark is implemented, how will the church survive at all until Jesus Christ comes back, which would be about three and a half years after that point, unless there were provision in place on the scale necessary to support thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people in geographies around the world? I think I so, know where you're going with this. Well, your thinking changes a little bit. You, yeah. It has to. Otherwise, you just say, well, we get about a month and we die. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then who is alive and remains until the second coming of Jesus? So, this is the question, right? Now, this question only crops up if you dismiss a pre-trib rapture. So, for those that are dispensationalists approaching this from a you know, strongly pre-trib rapture position, these, this question it means nothing. 
like, well, why would we care? And uh, then my question becomes, well, but if I'm right, what will you do? So now we end up with this, okay, we have this awkward kind of question going on here. It's like, well, if he's right, we're really in trouble here. We're not thinking along the lines of, what will we do when that mark of the beast? We're just saying, praise God, we won't be here for that. Right. And, you know, that's a really important point because I don't know where Basil stands on the rapture, but I, I've i sort of subscribed. And, you know, of course, like you said at the top, we shouldn't really get to, you know, claim that we know how everything's going to unfold. But my position is that the pre-wrath position, which is very close to the post-trib rapture position, effectively saying that we're out of here before the day of the Lord, when God's wrath mm-hmm. comes, that we will be taken out before then. But it really does change the perspective and what to expect. And I, I guess my, you know, I always tell people when people ask me about the rapture, I always try to say, you know, I'm hoping for a pre-trib. I don't think it is. Um, I'm, I think it's a pre-wrath position, but I'm really preparing my heart and mind for post-trib. And that really kind of speaks to them like, oh, that makes sense. Because when the Antichrist shows up, when all these things begin to happen, the person who is adamantly pre-trib will deny that. They'll say, well, it can't be because we're not gone. Or they're like, oh my gosh, I'm left behind. I'm going to hell. Right. So, so there's, this, um, there's definitely a strong deceptive power to the pre-trib rapture, if true. And you know, the joke recently has been, you know, if Hollywood's promoting it, then there's definitely something wrong. You might want to reconsider your doctrine. So. <laughs> that is a funny joke. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just the post-trib is the safe bet is the way I see it. You know, you don't want to be caught, you know, unawares if suddenly you're going through the tribulation and now you just like, I don't know, make poor choices because you think you got left behind. But if you, if, if you are prepared in your heart and your soul for a post-trib, you know, you'll, you'll stick it out a little bit better. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, Daniel, to recap, mm-hmm. Sheep Nation... Now, you're talking about those who uh, cared for the uh, Christians, the brethren, as if they were Jesus himself, um, not necessarily saved by grace. And back in your bio, if the listeners will remember, it says, uh, your vision is to promote unity in the body of Christ worldwide and assist in the creation and development of sheep nations. What exactly does it look like to create and develop sheep nations? Wow. Yep. Um, you are the first interviewer that's ever had me on the program and had the guts to actually ask that question. Here we are, man. We don't mess around. <laughs> <laughs> but Basil, the answer is genuinely, I don't entirely know. Mm-hmm. This is for me an unraveling storyline. The way I view it, I see Matthew 25. I see Matthew 24 bleeding all the way into 25. And what I see is that Matthew 25 is the end point of all the things going on in and through the tribulation. Now, stepping back from that, going back to my last question, if the mark of the beast is implemented and Christians are here, what do we do? Here's another point that I want to bring out that's really, really interesting. In the book of Daniel, chapter 11, 
you find that this is where the angel had come to Daniel. He says, now, Daniel, I'm just going to explain to you world history from here going forward until the time of the very end. And what the angel does, which came as a result of Daniel's 21-day fast and was held up by the prince of Persia until Michael the archangel came and helped him so he could come to Daniel, uh, what he explains here is essential that in order for us to understand our eschatology, or what's coming, what do we expect? And furthermore, it's really interesting because it's chronological. In other words, the angel, unlike the book of Revelation, does not skip back and forth, back and forth, just going all over the place. It's very systematic. It's like, well, this will happen, then this will happen, and then after that, this will happen, and this will happen. And what we do have, we do have some prophetic parallels or uh, multiple fulfillments of prophecy because like the little horn of Daniel is often attributed in part to Antiochus Epiphanes right. back in yeah. The, the, yeah. Um, but there are certain aspects of his descriptions and what he will do that were never fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes and have then been relegated to this final Antichrist person that we believe is coming on the scene. And okay, this is what I want to bring out about Daniel chapter 11. There has been an idea, I think some people have held this, and I think it goes back to the whole pre-trib perspective that basically once the Antichrist come, he's going to trample the earth, he's going to break it in pieces, and what, that, what they think that means is that he's going to rule the whole thing. In other words, the, the new world order has a success for a period, and then Jesus comes back and destroys it. So, it really, Jesus comes back, he's judging the whole thing. Everything has been put under the power of darkness for a period of time, and now Jesus has to come back and, you know, give it the one-two punch. Right. right. Well, when you read Daniel chapter 11, that doesn't quite bear out. Now, I'm going to bring out a couple things, okay? Number one, beginning in verse 31 of Daniel 11, it says, And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. I love verse 32. It says, but the people that know their God, that know, that intimately, deeply know who God is, will do great exploits. And that word great exploits means mighty deeds. And it says in verse 33, And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity, and by spoil many days. Now when they fall, they shall be hoping with little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries, and some of them of understanding shall fall, to try them to purge and to make them white even until the time of the end, because it is yet for an appointed time. Now, relating this to the body of Christ, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 that God is coming back to present himself a church without spot or wrinkle or any should stink, but that she should be white. So we see Ephesians 5 actually being explained in verse 35 of Daniel 11. And then we have this language saying that he's going to present this body to himself, a glorious church. Right. But then we go back and we say, well, what's the context? Verse 31, arms shall stand on his part. They shall pollute the sanctuary of stinks. They shall take away the daily sacrifice, 
They shall place the abomination that makes desolate. Now, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, and then he goes down to verse 21, he says, then there shall be great tribulation. Right. In my perspective, which again, I, I'm willing to answer questions on, be challenged on, whatever have you. I'm not necessarily the authority on this completely, but you know, with my little bit of knowledge, what I'm thinking is, well, if this is the abomination of desolation, Jesus tells us this is the great tribulation. And we have people that know their God to be strong and do great exploits. Now, we don't stop there because if we keep going, what we find is that we learn about wars of this guy. Right. And it says, the king shall do accordingly to his will. He's going to exalt himself. He's going to magnify himself. And then we drop down to verse 40, and it says, And at the time of the end, the king of the south shall push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him. Now, who in their right mind is going to come after this guy that's just set up the abomination of desolation in the temple? What's happening there? Why is that taking place? And my answer is, there is a resistance that exists until the very end that rejects the new world order. These guys, the king mm. of the north and the king of the south, right. whatever reason they may have, do not get on board. Instead, they oppose, and it leads to war. And then it says, um, you know, in verse 44, we just continue. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and Ethiopians shall be at his steps. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. So, again, in verse 44, we see this guy. He's still being troubled. There's still some kind of resistance. Right. Now, coming back to the whole thing of how, how do you uh, assist in the creation and development of sheep nations? Well, in my mind, what I see is entire nations or geographies being prepared to resist a new world order. Now, that's huge. I know. But when I read the book of Daniel, what I see is that someone's done it. That's really interesting. I'm trying to gather my thoughts here because I've been looking a lot at Daniel 11, in particular around the last half of it, you know, 36 through 45. And I'm trying to figure out uh, where we can go with this because there's a couple of things that come to mind. You point out something that's really interesting in that the abomination of desolation happens up in verse 31, and you're saying that this is all pretty chronological. And I'm not saying that it isn't, but from what I've understood to be going on here is that the wars of Antichrist, which alludes to Revelation 13, uh, I think verse 4, where it says, uh, who is like in the beast, who can make war with him? Something about the Antichrist is going to be very powerful, without a doubt. I mean, you, do you agree with that as far as his war-making capabilities are going to be pretty substantial? Okay, on the Antichrist, I actually believe this. He is very supernatural in nature. I believe that he's going to come as a resurrected Jesus Christ. I actually think he's going to be like a God-man. Yeah, see, I, I don't actually disagree with you on that, because there's a lot of verses that talk about that actual sentiment. Book of John... I don't have my notes in front of me here. I'm going off the top of my head, but John 5:43. Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders and he says 
that I came in my father's name. You didn't receive me, but another will come in his own name and you will receive him. And a lot of people think that they're talking about the Antichrist. And Chris White's work, obviously, talking about the false Christ, saying that the Antichrist will present himself as the uh, Jewish Messiah. And that's kind of where I was leading with this conversation, because it seems like the wars here in uh, the latter half of Daniel 11 is trying to fulfill, trying to make it look like he is fulfilling the Messianic prophecies. For example, in uh, Jeremiah 31, 31, where it talks about all the enemies of Israel are conquered and stuff like that. But the, the kicker here is that he's not able to conquer everything. He's, you know, he, uh, it says here, I think it's verse 41, where it talks about many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and uh, parts of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of to, to show the believer maybe that is in the last days there, you know, this might be the Antichrist. If, uh, and, and those nations there are modern day Jordan, I believe. So if the Antichrist is um, taking over all these nations that are coming after him, except Jordan is somehow sustained. Uh, but I mean, those are geopolitical sort of things to look for, but I, I don't I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this other than to say that. Well, let me, let me pick this up here sure. because um, we are really tapping into something that's, that's quite profound and we're getting at something that is just also not really brought up very often. Now, coming back to the idea that the antichrist is going to come as a resurrected Jesus Christ, or basically a glorified being. I believe he's going to come as a God-man. I actually, and if no one's heard the series that I did with Carolyn Hamlet, if, if you're listening to me talk, um, I did a series with Carolyn Hamlet. We called it Interview with a Former Illumined One. And Carolyn Hamlet was a bloodliner. I mean, she was part and parcel of that whole Illuminati agenda. She spent time in the heavenlies among the council of the ascended masters, you name it, uh, she, and she talked about a lot of her experience. Interesting. One of the things that she mentioned was being introduced to a guy named Ai, or Aroni, who had been incarnated into the earth in a physical body. And I, I can explain how she explained that was done. Um, this also gets into the idea of Nephilim or what they're trying to do with that now. But, you know, basically that he was kind of like a, a, a lead-in but there was another that she met who was basically the, the epitome of the Antichrist agenda, who they introduced to her as the most illumined of all. And she said when she met this thing in the spirit realm, it resonated with almost a complete, perfect um, harmonization with how Jesus feels when he comes to people, like in their hearts. Like it was that feeling that the being emanated, so so closely mirrored what Jesus is um, or how he reflects himself in the spirit with this being they called the most illumined of all. And so anyone can feel free to listen to that series. She actually talks about this in part six. Um, and you you can get to my radio program, The Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall, um, archives from www.bridemovement.com and just look for interview with the most illumined of all part six or just type it in on Facebook. Um, you'll find it eventually, or not Facebook, YouTube, you'll find it eventually. Um, but this, uh, this idea of an antichrist being a supernatural being, a superhuman, uh, getting into the whole uh, you know, corruption of the seed, it will be the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. That's the offspring, Zera, seed, right. offspring. The idea that the devil is you know, 
going to be the father one day, possibly, of the very spirit that is Antichrist. Why do they call him the son of perdition, if not for maybe that express reason? And that he is going to be Antichrist or the anti-type of Jesus Christ. Uh, well, this leads us into this idea that he is going to be that reflection of who Jesus Christ is coming as. Now, when Jesus Christ comes, what does he bring? He also brings his whole kingdom. Now, this is an interesting thing. When the Antichrist comes, he says his coming is going to involve the removal of the restrainer, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and he's coming with all power and signs and lying wonders. And that coming, of course, is the word parousia, which is the uh, same word used of Jesus' second coming. It, it actually means a return and subsequent presence with, right. which has led some authors to look at this Antichrist as, well, maybe he's been here before, whatever it is, or he is, or however he manifests. Now, this time that he's coming, it's in like nature with Christ bringing his kingdom. Now, when you look at Daniel chapter 11, and we get into this, it, it, it has this really interesting phrase. In verse 39, it says, Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. And I asked myself a lot of times, guys, I said, who is this them? Who is this them that this guy is causing to rule over many to divide the land for gain? And I went back and I began to say, well, okay, them is a pronoun. In other words, it is a word that is making reference to a noun, a person, place, or thing formerly referenced, formerly referenced being the key word. So I looked at our possibilities here in this text. And beginning of verse 36, it says, The king shall do accordingly to his will. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. And when we look in the New Testament, we see what Paul says about the gods. He says that they're all, you know, statues and, and they're demons. Right. And so what are demons? Fallen <clears throat> spirit beings. He shall um, speak marvelous things against the god of gods. So there we have a reference. Now we have fallen spirit beings. We have Antichrist. We have the God of gods, that's Jehovah, Jesus, and he shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, fallen spirit being, for he shall manifest himself above all, but in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory." And he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. And I ask myself, okay, what are our possibilities here? We have the God of gods, we have the Antichrist, and then we have the fallen spirit beings. And the thing is, Antichrist, well, that's singular. God of gods, even if we take that to mean the Christian trinity, the three persons, one God, well, still, why would Antichrist cause the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, to rule over anybody? His whole job is to make sure that doesn't happen. That leaves us with one party the fallen spirit beings. So now we actually have what possibly is a prophetic reference to a change in the way the world is run. In other words, the principalities and powers that stand behind the governments of this world coming to the forefront along with possibly their children. Nephilim, genetic hybrids, mm. transhumans and posthumans, yeah. so on and so forth, being the appointed leaders of the new world order. Hmm. That's really interesting. Uh, yeah. That's a, uh, um, verse 37 actually is something that I've uh, dug into. So is Chris White. And I, and I sort of went over what he went through and, and I want to see what your thoughts are because, you know, a lot of translations 
there in Daniel 11.37 says that he will have no respect for the gods of his ancestors or gods of his fathers, lowercase g, gods, plural. But the word there in, in the Hebrew is Elohim. And obviously, you know, there's uh, the word Elohim can be singular or plural. And out of 18 different translations, 11 of them say gods, lowercase, which is sort of the the typical version. And then seven of them have the uppercase G, God. And uh, J. Paul Tanner, who's a Hebrew scholar, and he's, a, you know, he's really dug into uh, this chapter and, and you know, just the Hebrew in general, he says that it has to be uppercase G, God of his fathers, because every other time, and he lists like, you know, like 10 verses in the Old Testament that has the phrase God of his fathers, it refers to Yahweh, right? So, the importance there is that he will have no respect or no regard or pay no attention to to Yahweh, basically, because he'll present himself as Yahweh in a sense. And, and here's what's really interesting that I found. Uh, the passage where it ha- talks about right after where it says, or to, to the one beloved by women, or uh, some some translations say, you know, he, he will, nor shall he regard the desire of women. And, you know, a lot of people look at that verse and they say, oh, he's not, he's going to be a you know, a transgender, or he's going to be homosexual, or he's going to be a Nephilim mm. or an alien or something like that. But here's here's some commentary that I thought was really interesting uh, that really kind of speaks into what you were kind of touching on there, that he might present himself as the uh, resurrected or return of Christ in some way. John Walverd, who's one of the these commentators, he took this to say, uh, and let me just quote him. He says, from the Jewish perspective, the desire of women was to fulfill the promise to Eve of a coming Redeemer to be born of a woman. Undoubtedly, many Jewish women hoped that one of their sons would fulfill this prophecy. So accordingly, the one desired by women is the Messiah of Israel. And so, you know, what does that mean insofar as if it's disregarding that? Of course, in one sense, it's just disregarding Jesus. But in another sense, the immaculate uh, birth, the, the virgin birth, is going to be something that is disregarded somehow. And what does that mean? I mean, could it mean some kind of genetic abomination? Could it mean, you know, it could mean all kinds of stuff. But I found that really interesting, and it really speaks into what you touched on with Genesis 3 and the seed of the, or the, seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There's something hmm. there in the desire of women, that phrase that points to something beyond, you know, what we expect to see uh, as a basic human being, so to speak, uh, from the Antichrist. So I think you're onto something there. And I don't know if you've ever touched on that particular aspect of the verse there, but I, I thought it was fascinating, that whole uh, desire of women thing and, and how deep it goes. You know, it's not just him not desiring a woman, you know, so. Mm. No, I find that absolutely fascinating. And no, that uh, this particular study is not something that I have dug into on the d- desire of women aspect. So I'm I'm learning here. <laughs> Well, good. I mean, that, that's, you know, iron sharpening iron, man. Um, <laughs> Amen, brother. Amen. Um, <laughs> Friends. <laughs> but, okay, so let's, let's get generalized. Let's step back a minute and, mm-hmm. and take a bigger picture approach here. And, you know, I want to see what your thoughts are. Now, one thing that's very clear about the return of Jesus Christ is that he is going to come in the clouds, right? He's, the whole world is going to know, you know? Yes. What part of that aspect will the Antichrist do in a sense that will effectively be so uh, marvelous and whatnot that it may deceive the elect. Because one of the things that has been on my heart a lot recently is this idea that 
everything we think we understand about eschatology and Bible prophecy and how things may unfold may actually be used against us. Mm-hmm. And I say that, and I speak that to, uh, not to discount the things that have been researched, but more so to say, okay, let's recalibrate a little bit. And and this is, um, you know, maybe something that uh, that we could discuss more, but we're all fairly young here. You know, we, we, I don't know how long you've been at studying Bible prophecy. It's, it hasn't been too long for me. I've been at it for maybe three years or four years. But in my studies, I've seen that there is in, uh, I don't want to use the word, traditional, quote, I use quotes, you can't see them, but mm-hmm. I'm using quotes, traditional interpretations of certain aspects. For example, the Gog-Magog war. Um, in my perspective, it's probably going to be after the thousand years, just because in Revelation 20, it says Gog-Magog, you know? Right. And so the, the Ezekiel 37, 38 explanation of the, the war and everything else is, it could be, and I'm not hundred percent on this, but it could be describing in a war that happens after the thousand year reign of Christ. But if everybody is waiting for the Gog Magog war and they're going, Oh my gosh, Russia, look at Russia right now. They're starting to, you know, formulate this army again. And they're, you know, Putin and all this stuff. Putin. Putin. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But but do you you kind of see where I'm going here where people are expecting certain things to be fulfilled? How does that play into what the antichrist may use or do in order to deceive the elect, because he's already deceived the the world at large. Mm-hmm. I think he's going after the Christians in particular, right? He mm-hmm. wants to deceive them because he wants to take them down with him. So, well, yeah. Let me say this: I do know that one of the things that Carolyn Hamlet told me, she told me this several times, is that when she was being educated, indoctrinated um, by the organization. One of the things that they communicated was that they they wanted to use Bible prophecy to facilitate deception. Right. And right. so, okay, that's from their camp. Um, and I don't know if that's what exact words, but that was what she told me. Now, um, I believe her, and I believe that there has been a great. Okay, and I'm just going to say it. I'm not a pre-tribber. I believe that people that are holding on to the pre-trib rapture as their blessed hope may find themselves in dire straits. Because what I see coming is not just natural wars and rumors of wars, bad things, horrible atrocities coming to the earth, Ebola. I see it as supernatural wars and rumors of wars, bad things. See... I believe, and this is going to take some people way outside of their comfort zone, but I'm just going to say it. If it's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about <laughs> the coming of the Antichrist with all power and signs and lying wonders. Right. Now, Jesus comes with power and signs and wonders. So, if the Antichrist is going to come with all power, signs, and lying wonders, <laughs> okay. according to the working of the power of Satan, what does that mean? What is Jesus coming back to do? Establish a literal spiritual kingdom on earth. Now, in order to understand this, people have to understand realm. And what I mean by realm is heavenly places. In other words, the construct of higher dimensions. Now, um, 
And I know you guys had Josh Peck on here a while ago, and he was talking about quantum creation. Great stuff. We've actually covered a lot of similar territory there. Let me say this, all right? Three dimensions is not where dimensions stop. And a, a dimension is simply an extension in a given direction. And every time you add an extension in a given direction, you've added a dimension. So if you add length to width, then you will go from a straight line to a two-dimensional plane. If you add uh, length to width to height, you will add a, an XYZ axis. You're going in three directions. That's our Earth. If you add another extension in a given direction at 90 degrees perpendicular to all those other three lengths, width, and heights, you've just entered the fourth dimension. Right. This is where you get hypercubes. This is where you get, um, you know, fourth dimensional activity. Interesting thing about dimensions is that they can overlap. So if you have four-dimensional space, you can literally have an infinite number of three-dimensional universes all overlapping each other. You wouldn't know it, nor would you know the way the overlap works of the higher dimensions moving up. Now, this is the spirit realm. So everything in the spirit realm is not determined by distance, but by dimension. Mm. So there is separation and overlap possible. Now, when you're talking about God bringing his kingdom to earth, what you're talking about is the full overlap of heaven and earth from the, the, the third heaven to the earth, that full realignment uh, between realms, which once existed in the garden, but was destroyed through the entrance of sin into our dimension. Right. Now they're out of alignment. This is why we have problems in this world. Okay, so now we have out of alignment, but we're bringing it into alignment. But there are three heavens. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2 through 4, I, Paul, was taken into paradise in the third heaven. Right. So, okay, going through this quickly, we have third heaven's paradise. What's second heaven? That's where the wars take place. That's where Gabriel and Michael and the prince of Persia were all fighting when Daniel was fasting. That's second heaven activity. That didn't happen in Texas. So, you have this whole spirit realm, realm, uh, of God's realm overlapping the whole spirit realm realm of the second heaven where Satan is actually working all of his agendas out of. And then then you have Earth kind of like at the center point of all of the cosmic conflict because God intends to make the buck stop at Earth. What's going on in the evil in all, not only the Earth, but see, gosh, the Bible talks about a new <laughs> heavens and a, you guys are setting me off. You see, I didn't intend to go this far, but look, the Bible the says... <laughs> A new heavens and a new earth, right? That means that that threatens everything the devil has done throughout the heavens and heavenly places, even extending to other dimensions. Mm. A new heavens and a new earth means complete redemption of all things. Right. This is scary. This means earth has been placed at the center point for cosmic conflict. Now, when the Antichrist comes, he's coming with all power, signs, and lying wonders. If Jesus Christ is determining to align earth with the third heaven, his kingdom, realm, and dominion, and the Antichrist is coming in like fashion, I propose that he is intending to lift the very veil that separates earth from the realms of the second heaven that are full of corruption, evil spirit beings, entities from other dimensions, and so forth, and letting the whole thing fold out onto the earth so that it will be as it was in the days of Noah, for a season, and unless the Lord shortened those days, <laughs> no one would survive, but for the elect's sake, those days are shortened. So, in other words, when this thing is opened, I don't think it's going to be necessarily pitched as the worst thing in the world, doom and gloom and so forth. And I think that people that are looking for a pre-trib return of Jesus Christ, and I'll just say it, if this is the way it works out, could be taken by that deception this arrival mm. if 
this were how things played out because it would look like the coming kingdom. Right. And it's interesting that, you know, <clears throat> I know you've looked at transhumanism, so have we, and uh, we've tracked it for a while, but a lot of uh, what the scientists are trying to do is to try to extend our visual uh, perceptions into those realms. Um, I was listening to Graham Hancock, who's a very famous um, author, uh, you know, in the alternative media world. And, you know, he's, he, I think he had the book fingerprints of the gods that was very popular. And he talked about how his ayahuasca experiences opened him up to this, this realm. And he says, you know, it could all be in my mind, but, uh, and, and science is trying to reduce everything to materialism. And so they're, you know, they're kind of stuck in that paradigm, but he firmly believes that there are these angels and demonic entities within this realm that ayahuasca opened himself up to. And, mm. you know, of course my, my belief is that drugs like ayahuasca and, and other substances are sort of um, gateways into that world and that we are actually breaching a boundary that was set uh, upon the, uh, the fall of man. And we were kicked out of the garden and we're sort of opening up legal openings, gateways, portals into those dimensions, um, you know, breaking the boundaries God set for us when we do those things. But as a side, and I touched on this on Age of Deceit too as well, when you talked about Eden being, you know, that point when God's heaven, you know, met the physical earth, there's a lot of uh, mythologies that actually talk about that, you know, where mm -hmm. um, basically this whole idea of the, the philosopher's stone and the stone that fell from heaven it's not just physical space, but it's, but it's this idea that it came from this other dimension. Yes. Um, and also, you know, I've always felt, and this is something that I need to explore more, but I've always felt that because, you know, some people say that second heaven is outer space and I've always felt that outer space in general from the third dimensional perspective is still a three dimensional construct, but it's almost like the ocean. Like I've always felt like below we have the sea and in effect, the ocean is a different dimension, right? You go into the ocean. I grew up as a swimmer. I was in water all the time. I know what it feels like in the water. It's like a different world. It's completely different. I kind of feel it's the same way in outer space where there may be entities that exist, intelligent entities and races and all this stuff that exist that are sort of, I don't know, they interact differently than they do in the third dimension, but, but they're there. And I base that off of, you know, just some random studies I've done. And again, I have to develop that a lot more, but what are your thoughts on that? I mean, do you think that there's something in the second heaven? You said this is where the wars take place. You know, there's uh, some theory about the, uh, you know, a pre-Adamic race where planets might've been destroyed. And I mean, you know, there's all kinds of stuff people have speculated on even from the, from the biblical, you know, passages where Satan's fall, he was the anointed cherub. Uh, something happened. The Bible talks about Rahab, how God pierced Rahab uh, he pierced the fleeting serpent, you know, and this is something that sounds like it happened in the ancient past or perhaps in another dimension equal or parallel to ours that makes it so, I mean, maybe it's not millions of years ago, but you know, perhaps it is, uh, a war that happened, you know, that revelation 12 describes as part of, uh, you know, the whole idea of the dragon being thrown down to earth and all this stuff. So I'm going all over the place, but <laughs> <laughs> there's so much to talk about. I know, so I, know I know. I can just go on and on, but I don't even know if there's a question Let in that. I'm just going to hand it over to you. Yeah, go ahead. Let me respond to that. Unless Basil, you want to throw something in here. I want to hear what you got to respond. Oh I'm, man. I'll, okay. I got, I got something, but it's just going to take us everywhere. So I'm going to wait. Hold on. Th this is fascinating. And guys, 
Uh, I did a YouTube, and I also did a program a while ago on discovering the truth with Dan Duvall called, I basically called it Water Spirits Exposed. What I did was I compiled every reference that I had to the realm underwater by witch doctors and occultists and different things that all talk about this realm. Interesting. And I put it all in one thing. Now, what I said was this. I said, listen, just listen to what these people say. And I read their accounts for two hours. Now, first of all, in order to have two hours of material on one subject like that, that's so bizarre, you can't just dismiss it from all these different people and say, well, they're all lying. Somewhere in there is some nugget of truth. So let me start with what you mentioned about water. Now, what I've run into is that water is absolutely a realm. And it, 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 there is a transition point that occurs. And I believe, and I'm just going to say this, that you know, underlying the physical earth is a spiritual earth. Uh, um, I actually believe that the, the physical earth actually sits on top of a spiritual earth which exists according to the principles of higher realms and dimensions. And so you can have crossover occur at different points. And, and I think this may be even tied to ley lines and ancient or, um, you know, geometries and so forth that you would see ancient societies building into their complexes and stuff. Anyway, right. um, when you get underwater, here's what the Bible says. There is an account of the gathering demoniac. Now watch this. This is so fascinating. So Jesus crosses over the sea in a boat to go to, to go to Gadara. As he's crossing, there is a tumultuous storm. <laughs> but he gets to the other side, right? Right. Now, what we have to understand is that that's actually part of the story, but we oftentimes we just ignore that. We just start in Gadara, all right? But I'll come back to that. Now, he gets to there, gathering demoniac comes forward and they begin pleading with Jesus, what have we to do with you, son of God? So Jesus tells them to shut up. And um, <laughs> the thing that's going on there is this guy is possessed by a legion of demons, 1,000 according to some you know, figures based on a Roman legion and so forth. Now, they say we are legion because we are many. So what does Jesus do? He says, you got to leave. Now, <laughs> this also gets into kingdom, but I'm not going to go there right now. What I'm basically going to tell you is that Jesus tells the demons they have to leave. Now, the demons plead with Jesus. They say, send us into that herd of pigs, herd of swine, so that we can go there instead. And he says, okay. Now, they take that herd of swine. They run it where? Over the cliff and into the water. Story done, right? Praise God. Jesus had the authority to cast out devils, and we can cast out devils too. As a matter of fact, Mark 16 says, and they shall cast out devils. Right. Awesome. Awesome revelation. I feel bad for the Christians that don't understand this. I cast out devils all the time. I don't think a week goes by very often that I'm not casting a devil out of some. You know, I've, I've actually had this happen where I get on the phone with someone for the first time, and within 30 minutes, I'm actually casting devils out on the phone. You guys... This stuff is crazy. But, okay, coming back to that story. Now, Jesus is going to gather. This is a huge storm that breaks out. Why? See, the spiritual authority over that territory was fearing 
the conquest of Jesus. Because Jesus, when he kicked them out of that man, that was also their point of contact with that whole area. That was the literal portal or access point that the Spirit of Legion had to the area. And so they were very scared that they were going to lose that. Um, territory in the spirit realm is determined by the hearts of men. This is why God is after the hearts of men. This is why the devil is after the hearts of men. That is the territory in the spirit realm. Now, that's also an access point. So, but these, then, now these demons, they, they inhabited this man. Jesus crossed it. There, there was tumultuous waters because, you know what, that was the spirit realm's act, reaction to Jesus Christ coming into their territory. But, you know, right. they couldn't stop him. Now he gets there. Man gets confronted. Interesting. In the city of Gadara, you know what they found? They found a statue, an altar to Jupiter in Gadara. Hmm. Now, what's the significance of that? Jupiter is the, the Romans' version of Zeus. <laughs> right. Now, Zeus loved a certain kind of sacrifice pigs. Hmm. Now, catch this. When Jesus engaged the legion, they were very scared. And they asked Jesus to send them into what? Pigs. Why? The spirit that ruled over them in that whole region, I guess we could call it a principality or a throne, I don't know, whatever have you, was Zeus, that Jupiter spirit. That was there in Gadara. That was its territory. And these legion, that was their lackeys. So when legion lost its territory, they asked to go into the pigs. Why? Because that was an acceptable sacrifice. Hmm. So they took the pigs and killed them all on their entrance back into their base of operations, which was where? Mm. The water. Wow. If you look at voodoo in Haiti, and I'm half Haitian, they have this philosophy that comes from what the spirits tell them. These spirits of voodoo in Haiti all say the same thing. We hail from the city in the sea. In other words, they claim, the spirits themselves, to actually take their orders from a city underwater. Hmm. Wow. Now we're talking about realm. Where does Leviathan play, according to the book of Job? In the water. Right. When God delivered the Jews... From Egypt, where did he take them through? The Red, the sea. Red sea. What did he do? He split that sea, and then he drowned the entire Egyptian army in the sea. Guess what? There is a passage in the, in the Bible, so fascinating. It says, um, it, it talks about the strength of Egypt. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this verse to you, Okay. Because you guys aren't ready for this. this. This one blew my mind. All right. Um, it says, For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore have I cried concerning this. Their strength is to sit still. Isaiah 30, verse 7. You know what that verse strength is in the Hebrew? Rahab. Ooh. Rahab. Now, what mm. is Rahab? Let's go back in time to a verse that you mentioned, the Bible says in Psalm 89, 8-10, O Lord God of hosts, who is strong like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness round about thee, thou rulest the raging sea, when the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them, thou hast broken Rahab in pieces. Mm. Hmm. 
what's the association there? You know, there are spirits, there are dragons that are associated with the water. Mm-hmm. There are spirits that seem to take their authority and their uh, orders from underwater locations. So when we talk about a realm, I believe that the water is... Abs- and when you get into what these witch doctors say, I'm telling you, this stuff gets crazy. Because apparently there's cities under the water all around, particularly the continent of Africa, that exists primarily in the spirit realm, right. where spirits are coming in and going out. And, and these witch doctors, they astral project to these places. Mm. Yeah, and it makes sense, too, because uh, the angels that sinned were you know, thrown into Tartarus, which is the lowest regions. And, you know, I, I've actually, I wrote a, a blog post about a year ago on this topic, and I was trying to get into a verse-by-verse study of Revelation 13. And um, what ended up happening was the, the post just became all about the sea. And um, the traditional interpretation is that the sea just means, uh, you know, all the nations in the world, because uh, later in Revelation, um, I think it's 17 or 18, it talks about, the uh, you know the waters uh, the nations gathered and, and the waters are the nations is basically what the angel shows John, but as I sort of dug in a little bit further, the, the sea itself is where the beasts come from both in Revelation thirteen and Daniel seven that talks That's about right. the four beasts. Oh come on now, preach it, brother. <laughs> <laughs> they come out of the sea, and so my my whole sort of conclusion was that. You know, it represents a place that is, you know, like you said, a, a sort of a dimensional thing. But, you know, I kind of generalized it into, I didn't want to go there in the post if I read through it. I'm kind of like hesitant to go there. I say, you know, the place of sin. But I think there is something about Mark, you know, 439, when uh, the, the followers of Jesus, I think it's Peter, he wakes up, Jesus rebukes the wind and he says, be still. And then later he walks on the water, right? I mean, everyone talks about, oh, you walk on water. It's this miracle of Jesus. What's the significance of that? Could it be that it was just Jesus showing his authority over this uh, this d- dimension, this pit? Uh, hmm. And then I sort of uh, relate it to, obviously, the abyss uh, where, you know, Revelation 7 or 8, I can't remember. But basically, later on when the abyss is open, the, the abyss to the bottomless pit is opened and all those weird creatures start coming out. Yeah, I say, could it be? You know, could it be that that's the the place where he went to? Because you know, I think in Greek mythologies, the underworld it was highly associated with the ocean, right, and the sea and everything. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm just riffing here, but uh, I think there's something to that. And what about what about space? I, I want to hear your thoughts on outer space. <laughs> well, there's a very interesting verse um, in the book of. Amos. And I don't know that I'm going to be able to pull it out of my memory right now, but uh, the, 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 the truth is, I believe that space is part of the second heaven because oftentimes when you're reading through the, the Hebrew scriptures, you find a reference to heaven, including stars and some of these things that you do find in the literal outer space that we see in uh, above Earth's atmosphere. So, when I, what I basically say is that the first heaven is what's contained by Earth's atmosphere, and outer space is included as part of the ascending dimensions beyond what is our space and time. And so, I think it's like both 
outer space and the higher dimensions, mm-hmm. not just one or the other. That right. that now that's just my view. And I, I think that makes things make sense for the most part. With that view, I haven't run into any any real problems sure. um, with certain scriptures. And yes, uh, from the reports I get, there are all kinds of things going on right above Earth's atmosphere that are so scary and right. so um, uh, uncouth. <laughs> Demonic. <laughs> Demonic. Yeah. Um, okay, I was reading a story, and anyone can grab this off the internet. It's called Emmanuel Any. He was a witch doctor, and what, one of the, the accounts that he gives is that he actually ascended into these this craft in outer space, basically, where he met these beings that gave him powers, witch doctor powers. And he, he did that through some incantations. So what, what is he saying there? Well, probably that he was able to go to this realm of outer space through, we could call it teleportation, um, that's that's the term the Illuminati uses. That's to take the whole body, not just the spirit, but the whole body through the spirit realm into another location. But not, not not just do you have these alien abductions experiences and people claiming to have contact with beings over here in the West. They have it in Africa and they have it other places around the world too. And yeah, they seem to kind of float around there in outer space. And, you know, uh, I don't know exactly what all the role is of what's going to happen there. But in Amos 9, 2 through 3, it does say this. Though they dig into hell, or Sheol, thence shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. Though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent and he shall bite them. And that's the verse I was referencing before. And what I take away from that is you have... Basically, the realms of hell or Sheol, the pit, and so forth, um, being a, a place where you have a lot of evil and these spiritual activities residing, you also have heaven. And I take that to mean possibly these realms above the three-dimensional plane. Then he references this location, the top of Carmel. Well, yeah. that's a physical location of high altitude. Right. That's what that one is very interesting. A yeah. physical location of high altitude, and then he closes off with the bottom of the sea, which we just got done talking about. Right. So if right. you look at Amos nine two through three in context of the conversation we're having, I think you do have these different areas or realms, all of which are chock full of this activity. That's I mean just horrible. Right. And actually, you know, I I've been writing a book on the secret space program, and and it's a very fascinating study on you know the. The cover up and the you know the black black projects of different things that are out in space and stuff like that. But um, one of the oh, verses I'm excited about that. Yeah, yeah one <laughs> of the verses that uh, was really fascinating and, and I think sort of uh, not justify necessarily, but but was sort of the point at which I thought, okay, maybe there's something to this with uh, the judgment of not just the the fallen angels and the demons, but really humans that uh, subscribe to these you know these aspects. It's found in Obadiah, and uh, mm-hmm. Obadiah talks about uh, it's actually Edom uh, will be humbled. But you know, obviously, with a lot of Old Testament scriptures, there's a there's some overlap. You know, goes a little deeper into some shadows of what may happen in the future, and and that's kind of what I get from this. And in uh, in verse two and on, it says, "Behold, I will make you small among the nations; you shall be utterly despised." Verse three: The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling. And then it's interesting because it says, who say in your heart, 
Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And I'm going, what? Who's, mm. who's setting nests in the stars? Right. <laughs> right? And so is it just the angels? Or are we talking about perhaps a breakaway civilization, which is a phrase coined by Richard Dolan, who's a secular researcher, but he believes that there's a, an elite society that um, basically through the funding of uh, post-war World War II of some of the, the plunder that was found, especially on the, uh, uh, the Eastern side, not the, not the Nazi side, but the Japanese side and the plunder there. Uh, that MacArthur ran into. There's a whole history that I go through, but um, it, I mean, it's it's literally hundreds of trillions of dollars that they had to their disposal, and that's when all the the interesting structures were formed. As far as the IMF, the World Bank, those things were formulated right after that. And you're going, hmm, that's really convenient that these international institutions were formed right after uh, the U.S. and and you know and the uh, Axis powers came across this large sum of money, which was, you know, largely gathered by China and during the Silk Road trades and Japan, hmm. Japan basically plundered all of it and uh, they were trying to hold all of it, but you know, they lost the war in, in that process. Uh, the United States got a hold of it. And so there's a whole sort of, you know, alternative history there. But I mean, getting, getting back to the Obadiah thing, I think there's something where if there is some sort of colonization, weaponization, um, militarization of space, I mean, that would make it really easy for a figure like the Antichrist to quote unquote come in the clouds to sort of mimic that, you know, and, and lying wonders, lying signs. Right. Could it be supernatural? Sure. Uh, but, you know, I, I tend to lean towards that it's going to rely heavily on technological components, uh, especially, you know, there's there's quotes from, uh, gosh, who's that author? Arthur C. Clarke that says, any... Uh, advanced form of technology is, is no different than magic. Uh, I can't, I don't think it was the exact phrase there, but essentially that, you know, technology at, at, to the most advanced point is indistinguishable from magic. If you watch the movie Thor, you know, mm -hmm. I think they say the same thing, right? <laughs> uh, where, you know, Thor's talking to the Natalie Portman character and, you know, what you call science is we call magic or something like that. So, right. um, it's interesting how all these things are coming together, but um, I'll hand it back to you. I just you, you you make me go on rants, Daniel. I don't know what it is. Right. Just well, <laughs> just real quick, it makes it the whole space thing reminds me of a of a current event that just happened, which was the X thirty seven B landing recently. Are you guys familiar with this? Uh, hello, I told you about the X thirty seven B. But no, you did not. Yeah, I did. Well, for Dan Duvall and all the other listeners that are yes. not familiar. The X-37B is a is a basically a space plane. It's an airplane that can get high enough up in the atmosphere and actually sort of uh, get in pseudo orbit around the planet. And it's super secret military thing. It's been uh, orbiting the Earth for two years straight without coming down, and it just landed. And um, it just makes me think of the you know principalities taking the high places and things like that you have a plane super secret that is you know only available to a the government or b some sort of organization that has trillions of dollars to do sneaky things with um you know it it, it to me i see spiritual warfare in that i mean how much uh, how easy would it be for an occult-centered organization to send up, 
you know, they call it experiments, but you know, who knows, there could be some really shady stuff going on up there, um, you know, to spiritually influence the, the whole planet for two years. Right. The, the payload was, is, is classified. The X-37B right. itself isn't, but it's right. between DARPA and NASA. And Basil, we talked about the X-37B on our first apocalypse update. You don't remember that? Space robots. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a month ago. And you're just like, well, oh, I, don't, I don't remember. Did we use the name X-37B? Yeah. I don't remember yeah, that. I did. Okay. I don't know. All right. Well, you, well there you, we go. You don't pay attention to anything I was anyway, paying so. attention to you, so. <laughs> um. Uh, I yeah, have, what do you think about that, Daniel? I, I have been told a, a lot of things. Now, now I, I do a deal of, I call it life coaching, but I do work with people that have come out of dissociative identity disorder, have been subjected to government mind control experiments, and so forth. Um, and I, anybody that's doing this right now is being made privy to certain things because it just comes up and uh you know my great friend and mentor dr preston bailey uh, we did a whole series on assessing mind control and we did 14 hours on this stuff and we we got into some of the things on how this works a lot of things on how this works and um a, a, another gentleman out there that's come forward with certain information is, is doug riggs and he's talking about the nephilim mothers and maybe you guys are familiar with him and some of his material and um, there, there are others out there that have, have begun to really work with uh, some of these individuals that are wanting Jesus, wanting freedom. And it's way, way more complicated than just deliverance. We cast out devil, done. No, this is different. Um, because what you end up with is you end up with fragmented personalities mm -hmm. that can individually be demonized. And you can have hundreds and thousands right. of these fragmented Personalities, that's why you call it dissociative identity disorder. All the personalities are dissociated aspects of that person's core, and there are amnesic barriers that are upheld by demonic powers. We, we could talk about this for days, but in, in the process of helping individuals with this, I, I've become privy to certain information that really I, I don't have any way of proving or disproving, which is why I don't really talk about some of these things much. But um, I have heard some of the most fascinating things. And, you know, uh, one, one gentleman told me, um, because, you know, they, they told me that they don't mind if I put out some of this information, is that uh, they, they were involved in the, the Montauk project, the, the Montauk chair. Mm -hmm. right. Yep. And um, what they told me was that in order to use the Montauk chair, they, they, they got this chair from somewhere. I don't know. And it's got some kind of powers attached to it. And, and what they would do is, is they would torture, rape, um, all kinds of sadistic things to a child. And then they'd sit them in the chair. And then in this highly intense emotional state, um, having been you know, traumatized to the point of dissociation, they use the child in the chair to open a portal. Um, so there's human capacities that are that are opened up by the use of trauma and, and different things to take people beyond their natural capacities into the supernatural operation. Right. And in conjunction with this object, open the portal um, and they, they could go to Mars. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, yeah. so what I was told was that there's this underground Mars base and 
that they are basically doing all kinds of genetic experiments on Mars. And, and, and that's for later parts of the plan. In other words, they want to bring all these things, um, some of these beings apparently being 13, 14 feet high, yeah. to Earth. Now, this is what I was told. Yeah. Can it be proven? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, you know, is, is, is that's this, what you think? It, it, well, maybe Gonzo will prove it, but I, I'm just saying um, there's a lot to this space thing. This is what I'm saying. There's a lot to this space thing that, I mean, your average Christian is just totally uninformed about. Right. And I believe, I believe the testimonies, I believe the accounts, and I believe that it's going to matter. Some people think it's not going to matter because, well, there's going to be a rapture before anything bad happens. Well, <laughs> I believe that it, there's not going to be a rapture, and it will matter, and it's all going to be in our face one day. And I believe that, gentlemen, we are the generation that's going to have to deal with it. These guys that are 60, 70 years old, God bless their hearts, I love them all. They may not, but I do not see how we can go another 30, 40 years without this stuff manifesting when they're prophesying, the secular people, that by 2045, they're going to be able to take human consciousness and upload it into a non-physical avatar right. body. Yeah. What the heck? That's <laughs> what they expect to do? In 30 years, I'm only gonna I'm only gonna be 59. I'm not even gonna be 60 by the time they expect to be able to do that. That's crazy. Yeah. But that's now now we gotta minister and preach Jesus in this world. So <laughs> I think I might as well bring it to the table and say, let's just start to think about what are we going to do, yes. and, and and let's just talk about it. I mean, right now we can talk about it in relative peace. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Later, uh, might be different. Right. Well, it's funny because a lot of our listeners right now are probably getting all pumped up because uh, almost everything that you've named in the past <laughs> few minutes here, we've done an episode on, um, you know, from the Montauk chair to teleporting to Mars to, um, you know, uh, Illuminati rituals and um, all the way to, I mean, what was it? It was like, in our first 10 episodes or something, we were talking about uploading our brains to uh, machines. And, you know, that's always been a huge reason why we're doing Canary Cry Radio. And it makes me all warm and fuzzy inside, Daniel, to hear you get so excited about it, <laughs> because that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. There are huge things going on, and nobody's talking about it because it sounds so crazy. I mean, like you said, in 30 years, we could all be uploading our consciousness into basically the internet or any, you know, some sort of machine. And, you know, it's going to take me 30 years just to work through the possibility of that before it, you know, becomes to fruition. I don't want to be caught off guard. And I don't think anybody else does either. And so, Daniel, hmm. welcome to the team, brother. <laughs> Welcome to the team. They the world met. must know. So, um, and well, well, I guess we don't know. This might go after the uh, the conference, but you know that might be something that we talk about at the conference in our little panel or whatever we're doing. Yeah. Well, if we're um, w when it comes to the subject of spiritual warfare, what's clear to me because I'm already dealing with it. And that's the key word, mm -hmm. already dealing with it. 
things are going to another level. Um, you know, Christians, once upon a time, spiritual warfare meant clear your mind of the bad thoughts. Right. Stop thinking about doing bad things to your little sister. Mm-hmm. Those thoughts are, are fiery darts from the devil. And when you renew your mind to the word of God, you will prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, and you'll be okay. You'll be a good Christian. Like, that, that was spiritual warfare yeah, once upon a yeah. time. As a matter of fact, that was, that was what they were trying to tell me 10 years ago at the church that they kicked me out of mm-hmm. <laughs> because I spoke in tongues. That was before I didn't know it. I didn't even know anything back then. I was just like, yeah. You know. Right. Um, what about these, this Genesis 6? I remember I was asking my pastor, what about Genesis 6? Daniel, you need to stay away from that. It, that was the line of Seth. <laughs> <laughs> what? Classic. Why were they giants then? <laughs> Yeah. They're so big. Do you know any convicts in prison that are giving birth to 13, 14 foot giants? Right. Come on. Um, anyway, so, you know, th- this spiritual warfare thing is going to another level. Now, let me just give you guys uh, a little example and some of the people that are listening of the stuff that I deal with um, on a regular basis. I deal with something I call dimensional imprisonment. Now, this goes beyond kicking out demons and it's different than interfacing with principalities and powers and, and, and some of these other uh, ascended masters and beings. So you, you, you really have different kinds of bondages that people get put in. Um, and you know, you, you do have the, the demons. The demons are the easiest thing because they, they're, they're weak. They're petty. They're small. They are feeble. As soon as they're exposed, they, they have to leave. Um, Interfacing is a little different, um, and this is done with anchors. And in other words, a, a person often they may be interfaced with a principality or a generational spirit through a process of rituals that are done one after another over a period of time. And at each ritual, it becomes another anchor point for that spirit to have access to right. that individual's life. Right. In order to get that spirit to no longer associate itself with the person, you actually have to remember or have the Holy Spirit reveal the anchor points and renounce them, which oftentimes may involve renouncing or repenting of involvement in rituals over a period of time. So all those anchor points can be released. And then that, that companionship in the spirit, so to speak, can be just completely severed altogether. That can take time. Um, then there's also what I call dimensional imprisonment. And this is happening to people. But obviously, people don't know anything about this. And this deals with the way the realms are layered. Brothers, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain something to you on this program um, that may help a lot of deliverance ministers in the future if they're listening to this. And they, they, they've been stuck. They don't know what to do because they don't know what they're running into. And, and I, you know, <laughs> oftentimes you find this, people say, you know, well, I, I do this or I do that and I'm a deliverance minister. But they cast out demons. But once the demons are, are gone and the person's still in bondage, they don't know what to do. They just give up. Right. And, and they don't tell you about that. But that happens a lot. And the reason why I know this is because I... Sometimes I'm the person that gets the story on the back end. I went through deliverance. I went through the the the, the, the foundation class at my church. I've had people pray for me, and there's been no breakthrough. Oh. You know, uh, thank right. you, Jesus. Thank you for that ministry. You know, and yeah. and I and I do. I praise him because uh, I wouldn't know half of what I know if I wasn't working with the wonderful individuals that I do. They teach me more than I teach them. But this is something that I've begun to understand is dimensional imprisonment. Now, 
In Psalm 88, this passage is fascinating. And what, what, what you see here is, is this um, individual, and they are crying out to God for help and, and, and basically letting him know all their distress. And what he says is, let my prayer come before thee, incline thine ear to my cry. This is Psalm 88.2. In verse 3, it says, For my soul is full of troubles, my life draws nigh to the grave. For my, um, I am counted with them that go down into the pit. I am as a man that hath no strength, free among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, whom thou rememberest no more, and they are cut off from thy hand. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the deeps. Thy wrath lieth hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves. Now, the interesting thing about Psalm 88 is the tenses of the verbs. He says, now remember, the guy is alive. Alive. He's alive. Right. Otherwise, he couldn't write this because he'd be dead. But he's alive. <laughs> <laughs> I just need to make that clear. Now, this is what he says. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit. Now, how do you get laid in the pit, Abaddon, and mm -hmm. still be alive? This is what you call dimensional overlap, or what I call dimensional imprisonment. People do not understand that they are first spiritual beings and secondarily existing in the earth realm. Right. People don't understand that. They think they're, they think they're flesh. The Bible says, um, you know, if we live after the flesh, it profits us nothing. We have to be living after the Spirit. So we have to incline ourselves to spiritual things. Um, the Bible says, watch this, he who is spiritual judges all things. So the Bible says, don't judge, lest you be judged, okay, in the flesh. But when you judge by the Spirit or the Spirit of God has judgment on the inside of you that you become aware of, you realize what's really going on. You could have two people that say the same thing, have the same problem. One person, it's their fault, and another person, they are being uh, completely and totally victimized. And they could be looking like the same situation. It's only the discernment of God cropping up on the inside of the man or woman of God that makes that distinction without further explanation necessary. There's right. a certain judgment the Holy Spirit gives. The Bible says the Holy Spirit will teach us all things and show us things to come. It's amazing. Now, when you're talking about being a spiritual being, what you're talking about is that you have a spirit, and that spirit participates in higher realms because it's a spirit. It's, you see, the soul-spirit realm is composed of multiple dimensions, and we exist according to these principles while we're living on earth. And, and this is where people really need to break out of their old thinking. Point in case in point. Ephesians 2.6 says, For we have been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And that word is past tense. What that means is that there is a translation that takes place when we are saved that allows us to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. We weren't there before, but we go there when we're saved because we have access through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This is salvation. Access through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So when we believe on him, we will not perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible says in Colossians 1.13, um, for we have been translated, displaced, out of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. So there's this maneuver that takes place, not with our physical body. I didn't go to heaven in my body, but my spirit is now seated with Christ in heavenly places. This is spiritual displacement. This means the realm of heaven is now in contact with the person's spirit through the work of Jesus Christ. 
In the same way, the realms of the second heaven can be placed in contact with the person's spirit. It's called dimensional imprisonment. So when this guy said, as a very much alive individual, I have been laid in the lowest pit, what he was saying is, part of my spirit man has been imprisoned dimensionally. And I run into this all the time. People literally are in dimensional prisons, and they need to be let out. That's why the Bible says in Isaiah 61, watch this. See, I wish they taught this stuff in church, but they don't. And it would help so many people. (laughs) I I get so frustrated because it's like, you know, you have all these people running around like, Jesus didn't help me. No, the church didn't help you because they didn't know what they were talking about. Jesus can help you. The Bible says of Jesus, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them which are bound. Now, let me ask you a question. When people get saved in a jail, do they get let out just because they're saved? Free ticket, get out of jail? You know Jesus? No. That is not the prison that Jesus is letting people out of. You know what? If you committed murder and you're in jail for the next 25 years of your life, I'm sorry. That's justice being served. Praise God that he has redeemed you from the eternal consequences of sin. But Jesus very much has in his deck of agenda, ministry, purpose for people's lives to release them from spiritual prisons that have kept them bound. That's why it says, release from the prison. In Isaiah 42, it says something very similar. And it's just amazing to me how it, it's just so clear when you read the Bible, yet we look over it and we just pretend it's not there. It says, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thy hand and will keep thee and give thee for covenant for the people, for light to the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison. What prison? There's these dimensional prisons that people get trapped. It's a form of bondage. And it happens through these higher realms. If you don't understand that, um, you can have a person that's been somewhat you know, delivered of the demons that may have been there, but still have not experienced the freedom and liberty that Jesus Christ purchased. Right. Mm. Now, do you think that, you know, you riffed on the church there and sort of <laughs> talked about how they're not talking about, it. do you think that they're under some sort of spiritual blindness because of, uh, you know, because they, they don't teach this kind of thing? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. I do. Well, that's why we're here and that's why we're doing what we're doing. Um, I, I actually have noticed um, just in the years that we've been doing Canary Cry Radio, uh, actually a little bit of an increase in at least starting to breach some important topics like this. Um, in, in several churches, some some very, uh, you know, churches you wouldn't expect to. Um, and the responses have been mixed. And I just want to... Uh, you know, if there's anybody out there listening who's a pastor or something who has actually started to breach some of these topics, um, you know, commend you because, you know, I've heard stories and I've seen it happen where uh, a particular pastor did start to kind of get into a little bit of the Genesis 6 and start to kind of, you know, put it out there. And uh, long story short, the church doesn't exist anymore. Um, So, you know, it's one thing for the church to teach something and to be aware of it. It's another thing, you know, for uh, good soil to be available for that. And so I just want to put that out there 
you know, mm-hmm. just to just so everybody's aware that you know, I all of these podcasts, all of the conferences, everything we do is for the purpose of edifying the church and and getting that out there and and spreading this facet of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truths of what are going on in the world and any podcaster any person who's talking about this any author i just want to say that i've seen it actually it's starting to make its way into the church yeah. and the truth is getting out there and you know i think it, it it's a lot it's just it's good for us to know that so if anybody out there is listening it's not uh you know, it's not falling a lost on cause. Hot. Yeah, it's not a lost cause. It's actually working. Yeah, and I, I actually just started meeting with a small group here that is into all that stuff, which yeah. is very fascinating. And their uh, their ministry is a missional ministry based on this idea that they're going to do great things in the end times, which is a, a, an angle that you just don't hear in a right. gathering of people locally. Yeah. So, yeah, and I would say even more so in the small groups has it been growing. And, um, you know, that's a, a great strategy, and not a new one, but a great place for things like this to um, be presented. So, in your next small group meeting, <laughs> make <laughs> well, sure to I, bring up Genesis 6. I, I, I will say this, gentlemen. I believe in the body of Christ. I do. I firmly believe in the body of Christ and God's ability to use his people to do awesome things. Absolutely. And I will never give up on the Ecclesia, the two, true church of Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, I, I just encourage people, uh, you know, go where you're fed. I mean, uh, if you're not being fed in a physical building, right. that doesn't mean that God isn't intent on feeding you. You have to find green pastures, but pray about it. And, you know, it, it, this message doesn't eliminate the spiritual principles that come along with being under spiritual leadership that is blessing your life and the benefits that come along with that. And I, I, I just know, you know, that um, when believers get so fed up with the church that they run as far as they can away from any kind of leadership or discipleship or anything, and um, it, it, it really does lead them into a darker place over time. And, and, it's really, you know, about finding that community that can build them up, that can hold them accountable. Um, and, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I've had a lot of frustration with the church, gentlemen. I wrote a whole book about it. For those of you that are interested, it's called Wounded by Leadership. It's about how I overcame um, literally one rejection after another, one backstabbing after another. And actually, I, I probably need to add some chapters to that book. But... <laughs> <laughs> um, very, very plainly stated, I, I speak this from a heart that's been healed, not a heart that's been um, just saved from all of the... Are you kidding me, guys? Every time I open my mouth, it's like I can watch the <laughs> devil just poisoning the minds of leaders against yeah. me. And I've yeah. watched this happen under different circumstances. I, I've actually, I remember there was one time I, I tried to go to this guy's... Um, this guy had a home fellowship, and I just wanted to go worship God and listen to him talk. So I called him. I, I looked him up on the internet. I called him. I said, you know, I, I want to come to your home Bible fellowship. You know what he did? He looked me up. He looked me up, <laughs> found my website, 
found some of my talks that I'd given at Future Congress 2, specifically the one on, um, oh, what was it called? As Above, So Below, The Battle for Manifesting Reality. Mm-hmm. Called me up and called me a heretic. Said, don't come anywhere near my flock. Oh, Lord. Wow. Said, wow. I didn't even ask. I mean, it's like, I didn't even show up yet. I, I'm getting kicked out before I <laughs> arrive. This is this is a whole new level. But folks, when I say that I say I have not given up on the body of Christ, God will do awesome things through his faithful uh, people. And I'm, I look forward to that with great intensity, which is why part of my vision statement is still to promote unity in the body of Christ. Can we talk about unity for a minute? Lay it on me, brother. This is the thing that a lot of people, they, they kind of get thrown off by this comment because they see the ecumenical movement, right? Which is, let's all be Catholic. Let's all just do what the Pope says. Right. Um, let's just agree to be friends and throw doctrine out the window because it doesn't matter anyway. We'll, mm. we'll just be friends. Love, you know? And it's this whole idea of, you know, the emergent church kind of deal and, um, the ecumenical movement and some of these things, it's like, okay, well, they have a form of unity. They can get together. At least they're not kicking each other with the left foot of ministry every time they turn around and so forth. Um, although I have my suspicions that if I showed up, they'd still give me the left foot of ministry. But <laughs> that's not the unity that I'm talking about. And when I talk about unity, what I'm really referencing is Ephesians chapter 4. And that, in that chapter, what you find is, Paul making a comment in verse 13, till we all, and that word all is pas, any, every, and the whole, till we all come to the unity of the faith. And what I believe is that God has a belief system. If you ask God, is this right or is this wrong? God has a belief system that allows him to tell you this is right and this is wrong. As a matter of fact, the Bible says of Jesus, I am the way, the truth. And the life. So that God, all truth, finds its origin in God and who He is. And that the unity of the faith is not based on necessarily what Daniel Duvall can figure out or what Gansh Shimura can figure out, but what Jesus Christ actually knows to be true. Mm. And that over time, it will be the knowledge of God that is discerned by his people. So we all begin to believe not what theologians so-and-so said, but what God himself believes. And when we get there, that becomes the unity of the faith. And so it's a very different approach. And I believe that when people begin to tap into unity based on what God believes, the heavens open. Um, Jesus said in uh, John chapter 17, Father, I pray that they would be one even as you and I are one, that the world would believe that thou hast sent me. So the very world believing on God hinges on that aspect, the unity of the people of God. It's a profound message, and we don't see it yet, but I believe that it's coming. I I really, I I cannot take my eyes off of this, and and, and I believe that some of the things that will ultimately be done through the church are going to be based on the corporate agreement that God is going to do something awesome. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Um, as a matter of fact, the Bible says, when two or three are gathered in my name, I am in their midst. So when we gather 
in the name of Jesus Christ, not in the name of so-and-so's Bible study or so-and-so's doctrine, but just to seek Jesus. The Bible says we literally open a dimensional portal and Jesus abides where we are, or we abide where he is. He's right. in our midst. That Amen. is an awesome picture of what God intends to do in the midst of the unity of his people. It's, it's incredible. And um, until we get there, this is where like things like the Prophecy Forum come in and um, other things I think God is putting on people's hearts around the, the, all over the place. Let's just be friends and compare and contrast our ideas until we all are, are, are transformed through the process of friendship and corporate fellowship and, and seeking God together. There's this thing, it's called the unity of the Spirit. So, in Ephesians chapter 4, the, past, the, the, the chapter begins with an exhortation to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then you get to verse 13, it says, until we all come to the unity of the faith. Now, the unity of the Spirit is that you, Gans, Basil, you, Gans, and myself, we all have the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, on the inside of us. And that unity, which is established through salvation, is something that we are to keep as brothers, as friends, as members holding the same citizenship. Because we are citizens of, of, of heaven. We are ambassadors of, you know, the kingdom. We, we are part of the family of God. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3 says, um, I bow my knees to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. There's a reason why we call ourselves brothers. It's because we're members of the same family. We have been made heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, according to another passage in the Bible. We are all part of the same priesthood. We have the Spirit of God on the inside of us, and this Spirit means that we need to engage each other in the bond of peace. I, I, I wish certain groups could understand this part. I haven't seen it much. But it's there in the Word, so I believe it, you know, and I have faith that as time goes on, God is going to really begin to stir this kind of thought process up in the, in the hearts and minds of His people. Yeah, Amen. and that's, uh, that's definitely, um, you know, I think what you're tapping into is, is, is a really positive message in light of all these really dark topics that we tread in. And I've always experienced this whole niche as being this doom and gloom and, you know, people accusing us of fear-mongering and all kinds of stuff. It seems that the light of Christ just shines brighter in such a world that we begin to understand. And I think our generation is starting to see pretty clearly. And, you know, I, I, I think that's a good thing. I think that there should be some kind of unity. And when you put it that way, it makes total sense. So I think both Basil and I are in agreement with you in that mission as far as, you know, how we occupy until he comes. So, Amen. Basil. Mm. Well, there you go. Daniel Duval, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a really great conversation. Um, where can we find more of your stuff? www.bridemovement.com. That's B-R-I-D-E-M-O-V-E-M-E-N-T.com. Um, that's my website. Um, there you can find links to radio archives. You can also find resources. I have prayer resources on there, um, articles and other things, links. And my books, uh, Noah's Ark in the End of Days, is available. Wounded by Leadership is available. And my newest book, Kingdom Government and the Promise of Sheep Nations, uh, if you want to really get some of the meat on what we began this conversation on, is also now available. And that's my newest book just been released. So I encourage everyone to check it out. It's available as an ebook. Definitely. I encourage everybody to do that as well. I certainly will be doing that. 
I will force Gans to do that no matter what he wants. And uh, <laughs> again, Daniel Duval, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great talking with you, and we'll have you on again. Praise God. All right. All right, everybody. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. Make sure to tune in next time. But until you do, think outside the cage.